0: Beauty Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin.
1: Hello folks. Mark Stockley. Hello.
0: Hello. And Greg Fido-Iden. Nice to have you back, Greg.
2: Yeah, it's nice hey. to be back. Hello hey. everyone. How are you all doing?
0: Oh, we've missed you. Um, we have also got Alice Duckett, producer extraordinaire, on the mic. How exciting for everybody. Hello. I thought you oh, weren't I... going to be on the mic, so I'm delighted that you're here. Of course, of course I've got my pillow for. I wouldn't waste this exciting opportunity. No, of course. Um, so as usual, we've picked the top three stories from the week to discuss on the podcast. So coming up on today's show, Doc's going to be talking about Thunder Spy, Mark's going to be talking about DNS over HTTPS, and Greg's going to be discussing the woes of the Reply All function. But before all that, here's a quick roundup of a few other stories from the last week or so. Revel or Revel or Sodinikibi ransomware has hit law firm Grubman Shire, Mercellus and Sachs. It's a lot of words. The gr- crooks are also said to have stolen more than 750 gigs of personal data, including contracts, contact information, and personal correspondence. Sadly, for the celebrity world, the law firm looks after stars such as Lizzo, Lady Gaga, Madonna, and others, and at least some of them are said to have been caught up in this attack. The hackers are apparently threatening to release the sensitive celebrity info unless, you've got it, the law firm pays up. Also in ransomware news this week, global mailing equipment company Pitney Bowes has suffered a Maze ransomware attack. Sophos Labs has just released a report into Maze and we'll stick it in the show notes if you fancy a read of it. An ISP in the US has been told to hand over the personal details of alleged pirates to major record labels such as Warner Brothers Records. A court-appointed arbiter ordered Charter Communications to hand over PII for over 11,000 alleged pirates. Charter argued that it would be difficult, given that the California Consumer Privacy Act requires them to notify every single person and give them time to respond. So instead, it was agreed that Charter has to hand over PII for all 638 commercial accounts that received infringement notices, the 112 residential subscribers who received the highest number of notices, and 38 who acknowledged Charter after having received their notices." In some positive news, our favourites, Clearview AI, have announced that they will stop selling access to face data to private companies and any organisation whatsoever in Illinois. Yay. Yeah,
2: hooray. I hate that company.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's not, I mean, it's not everything, but at least we're sort of getting yeah. there. So as a reminder, Clearview AI is the company that was scraping social networks and other sites and amassing a huge trove of face prints without informed consent. Its programme can identify someone by matching photos of them to photos that the clearview has found online so it's possible that you could get someone on CCTV get their picture match it with something with using clearview's program and then you find out who they are um, so i wonder what will happen to that technology now i hope it doesn't get into the wrong
3: hands yeah I think
1: what people are forgetting though is that what is like what people know? are forgetting here is that this isn't a question of them hacking into things like CCTV cameras to get pictures that they're not entitled to. To be fair, I'm not going into bat for them here, but they are collecting data that is people have already yeah, chosen know, to publish. The problem
3: is that you match it with people in their normal daily lives. So you could take a picture of me on the train and match it with all my social media accounts. I haven't given you my name. I haven't given you my information. That's the problem. It's not where they got the publicly accessible data
0: from. It's what they're using it for.
1: What I'm saying is that if you publish the data, you shouldn't be surprised if somebody finds it. So when it, you that's upload all. your
0: picture to Facebook, you're not anticipating that a company is going yeah. to scrape that yeah. data along with your name and then use it to for law enforcement, to give to law enforcement, or to give to private companies. So mm-hmm. I think yeah, it, it's about perceived use as well. It's anyway, like the same please. thing.
1: No, the fact that, it, that it, do, it is a good reminder that once. A picture is out there, it's out there. And the idea of, gosh, how did anybody find that out? The answer is, well, by trial and error, probably.
2: I, my, I have the same problem with this, which is uh, someone mentioned this to me a long time ago, and it's kind of stuck with me, which is that like, Google knows you're gay before you do. And it's a very mm. interesting fact, which is that a lot of us don't understand the amount, you know, the data that we put out there whilst we're using the internet, our pictures, our lives. I mean, like, I put, there was pictures of me as a kid dry humping a Dalek. Now that's true and a very awful fact. And then, thankfully I deleted my Facebook <laughs> account before that. The thing. Don't worry, AI yeah. anyway probably <laughs> but, has Right, that. but well, I did that in my youth, not really thinking about what I was doing. I was having some... Some fun. You know, I've got friends that have uploaded many a photograph of themselves on the toilets while drunk at nightclubs. These are things that we put when we're young and we don't expect to linger around and be used against us for the rest of our lives. Yeah. I think it's when companies like this go and abuse this kind of, what should be a beautiful thing, the social nature of the internet, and turn it against us, literally turning it into a law enforcement tool and, mm. and a way of controlling and oppressing masses. It's just, it's dark. It's, it's mm. immoral. This
3: is just in Illinois, so this
0: yeah, could actually exactly. be used elsewhere in the US. It's, it's it's So it's anywhere, not allowed to sell it to private companies anywhere in the US, I think, but the Illinois thing is any entity at all. So I presume that means law enforcement as well.
4: I, but um, I think it would be naive to assume that there aren't other companies doing this. Yeah. yeah. I agree. But,
0: so the Illinois thing is because they're being sued there, but they're also being sued in Vermont, New York, and California. So I can't believe that we're not just – I feel like this is kind of doomed for them. We're just moving that way.
4: I'd like to but it just, means, it just means it'll happen quietly and in secret. Yeah. I'm, yeah Mark's in, right terms on of, in terms of uh, – like I'm with you, Anna, and I, I think that there's a big gap between – so the way I think about the web and how it operates as being a kind of technician, I, I see the web in the way that Duck described it. You know, you put something online, and, and I know look, it's almost as easy for me to go and get one picture uh, – to get – a million pictures is it is to go and get a thousand pictures or 10 pictures um and and so i i see it in that way but i understand that the people who use things like instagram and facebook they have a model in their mind about how their content is going to be used and why they're uploading it yeah and it's when that mental model is abused that people feel that they that some injustice has been done, and I think that they're right to feel that way, uh, and we need to bridge the gap between the sort of technically how it works and how people think it works uh, and I well, think that has to come down in favor of How people think it works. There's things that there's something that bugs
2: me about this, which is like, you know, when you when people upload content onto these social media platforms, um, the the, usually the terms and conditions somewhere within there will say that the company, you know, whatever Facebook now owns the rights to this image, which is confusing because it means that they own the
1: content right, but then they don't claim responsibility for that content. (laughs) Okay, I think that's a misconception about Facebook that was a myth that came out years ago that if you upload something, they own it forever. They take on the right to be able to use that image, but they don't get the copyright for it. I think sure. that's very it's very that important sense. to make yeah. that distinction, and it's very difficult for a service of the Facebook sort to offer that service at all if they don't have if you don't grant them the right to display the image you just uploaded. Otherwise, they'd have to keep it private, and if your goal is to make it public, then they kind of need those rights. So I think that there's a there's a lot of what you might call unintended consequences here. And it's fascinating that when this whole right to be forgotten thing came up, there were large players in, for example, in in search and indexing. He said, oh, this is a crazy idea. It's important that we should be, if someone committed a crime 20 years ago, I should be able to find that out. It's a matter of public record. Um, And yet you know privacy laws have said well the right to be forgotten you should have a right to be forgotten so maybe that's the important thing that it the things that once they're online it is important that you're able to remove them later but how do you remove them from everyone who's collected them in the meantime and unfortunately as much as you may laugh at it, as much as it may not mesh with the the mental image that people are using Instagram have of how their data is used the the real solution kind of boils down to the fact that if in doubt, don't give it out because once you do. That's kind of that. It's not like the old days where it gets buried in a newspaper archive that somebody's very unlikely to find. And as Mark said, if Clearview aren't doing it, somebody surely is.
0: But that is, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. If, if in doubt, don't give it out. But that's not the way people behave. And that's not, that like, the, there's a whole generation or. Probably even two now that um, that have grown up doing this. So I don't think we can just say don't give it out because that's just
2: not the way that. It's kind of the opposite of social media. It's why I kind of hate that phrase. It's kind of like you know nothing to fear, nothing to hide. Um, it's it's effectively a chill, it's chilling us. It says, well, don't do it then. You know, don't be social. Don't talk to Don't have friends on the internet. Well, if you're not you know if you don't you know if you're not scared about someone reading your emails, then you shouldn't be emailing anyone. It's like you know go like go hide in a cave.
1: Go close yourself off from the world. Well,
0: especially at the We're moment, just, and- people need that yeah exactly i think i said in a video about staying safe
1: on social media lately that you can find on our youtube channel (laughs) good plug i i guess Mm -hmm. you need to you need to draw a bit of a line for yourself and try to avoid stepping over it so there are things it is okay to share but you know if you're going away on vacation if that ever Becomes possible again? Do you really want to let everyone in the world know when your flat is going to be empty? For example, of course, so I not, but do this do isn't what's happening with Clearview, is it?
0: They're just taking people's pictures. So, if I'm going to put my face next to anything on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or wherever, then my face is matched with my name, and so they could use that that simple informational video of me talking about
3: social media is my face that could have been face printed and then used to match me which obviously was not the intention of it
2: but you know and this is clear of you using it for law enforcement but there's a precedent here which is you know when facebook gets a non-exclusive transferable sub-licensable royalty-free worldwide license to your images and is able to sell them to anyone they like to do anything that they wish with them you know you end up with things like well what happens when you start being used to you know your image and your likeness is start being used by systems to create ais and that you you know, the fake models of faces. I mean, it might not be they're using it for public uses, but they're training it. They, they're, you know, they're using mm. our, our data about ourselves in ways that we're not aware of. And I think, I think the, the fundamental problem with all of this is that it's done without us knowing. You know, that's my face. That's my content. If I own the copyright, then you should have to tell me what you're doing with it. If you're doing it with law enforcement, I should have the right to say, no, no, I don't want you to send my information mm. on to some company to do that. It's my information. That's but this idea of us giving up our view, rights. They
3: didn't sell them that day. Data. They just took it. I feel like there was actually wow. something about yeah. the social media platforms not being happy with it. It wasn't that Facebook was actually a part of it. It was just that yeah, they banned
0: it now, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. No, they yeah. were pretty
1: outraged and said, "Look, that's not that's that's." Yeah, you to pay only for Just within <laughs> yeah. the letter, but definitely not within the spirit. No, no, yeah. I, I don't think they were being crass about it at all. I think they came out very strongly saying this is not, you know, however we may have started in the world of social networking, this is not the way we want to see it going on. So I think hats off to them for that. Mm. Uh, you yeah, know, fair. the Facebooks of the world were saying it's not where we want to go and let's find another way, another place to go and a different way to get there.
0: Mm. Anyway, let us know on Twitter what you think. Um, and uh, <laughs> no, I, you, I feel yeah. like this be has <laughs> been such not a long intro. I'm going your real name. <laughs> yes. But just don't post a picture of your face with your reply. Please don't.
2: Yeah, or I'll draw a moustache on it. <laughs>
0: You need to stop doing that, Greg. <laughs> right, Duck, talk to us about Thunder Spy. Aha, yes,
1: Thunder Spy. Uh, from uh, fears about surveillance to fears about surveillance. Uh, <laughs> so um, Thunder Spy, if you haven't... Uh, heard about it, you might because it's all over the news because it's a cool name. It's what we call a buane, bug with an impressive name. And of course, with the thunder Mm -hmm. in it, you can probably imagine it comes from Thunderbolt, which is that little lightning symbol that's on a lot of USB cables you get these days. And if you have a modern laptop, you'll notice that some of the ports, the USB-C ports, may have a little Thunderbolt, uh, which indicates that they're not just USB ports, they're also Thunderbolt ports. And what Thunderbolt is, it's kind of a way of making what used to be the expansion slots inside a PC. If you're a gamer, you'll know all about that. You know, you take the lid off your tower, there are slots in there, and you can plug hardware expansion like memory and graphics card and stuff straight onto the data collection bus, the memory bus of the computer. So you can become an internal part of the computer hardware. And that means you're in a very privileged position. Obviously, you're inside the computer, like the CPU. And what Thunderbolt does is it uses the same connectors that is also your USB port to be able to give outside devices basically di- what's called direct memory access or access to the hardware on your computer. And as you can imagine, that means that there's a lot that can go wrong. And a researcher called Bjorn Reitenberg from uh, Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands has put a fascinating paper together, uh, the, the links in the Naked Security article, which we'll put in the show notes, which explains some weaknesses he found whereby – if your computer's turned on, he's able to use Thunderbolt, very likely, to be able to essentially break into what your computer's doing, modify the operation of the operating system, and bypass the Windows lock screen. So, thus the name Thunder Spy, using the Thunderbolt direct access to the internals of the computer from an external port to bypass the need to put in a password. So, it sounds really scary. These ports have been plagued with these kind of vulnerabilities for years, right? Like I know um,
2: encryption or, or you know law enforcement tools for getting access to encrypted machines is often be done again through sort of abusing flaws in in direct memory access. Uh, you know, well, not how they got encryption keys out was using you know uh, DMA attacks, direct memory, uh, uh, and it's it's weird because it's like it, this port. You know, as you said, it lets people basically put a bit of hardware that's act as if it's inside the entire you know in the internals
1: of the machine. But you're exactly. it developing in lots of something, problems. it's really handy. Yeah. You could basically break into the computer, tell the CPU, hold off a minute, let me inspect the system as if I were inside it. And in fact, law enforcement have been using this very technique for years and years and years. In the old days it was much more dramatic. If they seized a computer when the power was on, a forensic analyst would typically take the lid off and then and computers were electrically a lot more I think in the old days than they are now. They tend to blow up a lot less. And what (laughs) with the computer on, they would literally take like a PCI debugging card and jam it into the slot inside the computer in the hope of getting what was in memory at the time. The idea being if there were files that hadn't been saved, the contents would be lying around in memory. If there are passwords in memory unencrypted, they'd be able to grab those. So the problem now is that you know, imagine well, on a laptop, it's very hard for someone to open it up and plug in a new device because they tend to be all soldered together and there aren't any ports. But here comes Thunderbolt, designed as with many things that have caused bugs in in recent years or problems. You're thinking of all of those speculative execution issues with Intel and AMD chips. Uh, Basically, it's all about performance. USB is fast, but because Thunderbolt can talk directly to memory, It's faster. And Greg, as you said, unsurprisingly, if you're basically letting an outside device by accident knit itself into the innards of the hardware Mm. of the computer, you kind of expect things to go right slash wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I remember because I so I stumbled across this years
2: ago with um, FireWire back when i uh, you know had it, got a Mac. I think it was my first Mac Book. Um, yes, yeah, FireWire was if you like a precursor to this, yeah, right? it was a slower one, but it, it, it again also had that direct memory access. And I think it's one of those features that that you know always they always always results in some kind of vulnerability to abuse it, but it has a lot of really potent uses. And the most important Absolutely. one I remember from the old days was like video editing. Indeed, you know if you because you want to get a get video, such huge bandwidth. Yeah, if you, you want to get a pay- video onto your machine while you were editing, you'd have, you know, if you had it on like a mini DV camera, you'd have to take it off the camera, get it onto disk, and then you could start editing it. But with FireWire and, and direct memory access, you could put the video from the mini DV straight into memory so you could preview the video as you're scanning through it. So that ability just to skip forwards and back off the video footage on the camera, which for editing, like, that saves you so much time, if, you know, so having to put it all down to disk, you could just put to disk the bits that you wanted. And so it's one of these features that it has some really important uses, but ultimately results in a lot of abuses, um, which are just inherent because of the architecture of it. You know, it's got a really good use case, but that use case is also really good for attacks as well.
1: Indeed, and that's you know that, that's exactly the point that the researcher here was trying to make. Uh, he did suggest in what he described as vulnerabilities that there were some aspects of some of the hardware security that has been built around Thunderbolt protection that probably need to be improved. So the good news is you basically have to grab the computer, open it up, take the back off, say, a laptop. Mm-hmm. You have to find the firmware chip. He's got a video of him doing this. You have to be able to identify the firmware chip that stores the actual code that operates the the Thunderbolt port. You have to plug a little piggyback connector on so you can control the chip, not from the computer, but via external electronics, reprogram it, and then come back later while the person's at the lock screen. So it's not something – it's not an attack that you could – that you could do yes. with phishing or well you could mm. do it by email but you'd have to persuade the person hey can i have Turn a your, your computer over get a screwdriver <laughs> of the following sort so you know it, it, but it is a it is a practicable attack um the, the thing i think that surprised him one of the things that came out in the video is that when he externally reprogrammed the flash chip that contains the firmware for thunderbolt well that firmware is digitally signed, and in order to create your own digitally signed copy, you'd need a private key that Intel has very much kept to itself. What he found, though, is that that key for example, that that digital certificate is not rechecked. For example, when the computer comes out of sleep mode. So if the computer's (laughs) sleeping, you reprogram the firmware, then it wakes up. It doesn't go, oh, I wonder what might have changed because there are an awful lot of things that could have but you assume they haven't. So therefore, although he couldn't have used the official flashing tool to add his firmware because it would have gone, go away, that's not digitally signed, he was able basically to pull the rug out from under the underneath the Thunderbolt uh, port. So he wasn't using any new techniques to inject this kernel driver into Windows and bypass the lock screen. Those were all old tools he was using. What he'd done is he just found, well, the user set the security model to, well, I want Thunderbolt restricted. I'll change that. And then when I come back later, I'll be able to plug in a device and it will just blindly be accepted. In other words, he set it back to what's called legacy or insecure mode. And that was a little bit of a surprise to me. (laughs) That it was so easy to change the firmware without any part of the operating system or the hardware bothering to check. So, I mean, would that be? Do you have to put the laptop back
4: together after the attack?
1: (laughs) <laughs> you, it depends, how, it depends well, just, how switched on the user is. If yeah. they're not going to notice that there's fire <laughs> hanging out and that the backs fall off. Actually, to be fair, he actually deals with that in the video. Showing, so he did the video pretty much in real time. So it's it's quite it's it's like one or 90 seconds of content, but it takes him about five minutes because he actually shows... He's using a ThinkPad, Lenovo ThinkPad, I think. He he actually shows himself in in real time unscrewing the screws, removing the back. He knew where the flash chip was, connecting his little piggyback probe to it, downloading the flash, modifying it and writing it back, downloading the, you know, the flash and writing it back. And then he didn't actually put it back together. He just clipped the back on. But uh- the point is you could... It's although it is invasive and intrusive, it's not like it would take you three weeks to do. We're talking about would have had to put the laptop back together, And,
4: and that's the thing that moves it from being you know a difficult attack to an impossible attack. He's having to put all the bits back in the laptop in the right places and then seal the case as if no one's been there. Well, I assume there. it's just a couple Is of jumper that, cables and a separate little breakup no, he, board, No, right?
1: the, the only thing he needs to remove are the screws that he takes off the back and removes the back plate, like you would if you had a laptop with upgradable memory. If you've ever done a memory upgrade, you remove the back carefully. There's a little slot where you pop the memory out, you pop the memory back in, put the plate on and do up the screws. So he doesn't have to... I guess it depends on the model of the laptop. If yeah. you have one of those super tiny 12-inch MacBooks from the, from the olden days, those are so complicated inside. Good luck finding the right spot in there. But if you know where to go, the actual hardware disassembly and reassembly is not terribly complicated. And anyone with a bit of care and or practice could definitely do it. <laughs> So out of interest, so like for, with previous direct
2: memory uh, sort of access attacks, um, so I, I used to work on our data, data protection kind of part of our business uh, with supporting sort of those kind of products, and you would get customers with those kind of concerns. Um, and so one of the kind of the go-to bits of advice back in the day was that you know give up on things like sleep and hibernate, you Absolutely. Know, always always That's cold boot a machine, yeah, and shut People down hate it because yeah.
1: it means you can't just wake up in the morning, flip the lid on your laptop, and carry on where you left off. But it is an excellent discipline. Remember here, what he's doing is he's He's breaking into an already running system that has its RAM filled with juicy secrets. He's poking in a Windows kernel driver because Windows is already running. And he's therefore accessing a system that has its memory jam-packed full of juicy stuff and already has the hard disk unlocked and ready to access. So if you shut down the computer, although you can take the back off and fiddle with the Thunderbolt firmware, then there's nothing that he can then subsequently do to if he plugs in the thunderbolt cable to try and do the direct memory access the memory is dead it's turned off and he's not going to get anything out of it so you're right greg basically powering off your computer shutting it down properly and booting up again although it's a pain, like logging off from accounts when you're not using them, it is an awfully handy discipline because the one way to make sure that there are no juicy secrets lying around in your many gigabytes of RAM that somebody could steal by fair means or foul Mm -hmm. is to have the RAM powered off and empty. If it ain't there, it can't be stolen.
0: Also, presumably quite hard to carry out when we're on lockdown. Or harder?
1: (laughs) Yes, that did occur to me. I I, that uh, maybe maybe this is less of an issue during lockdown, uh, where your computer is probably uh, going to be attended most of the time. You're not going to places like coffee shops. However, Mm -hmm. you know that if you've left it in sleep mode and someone steals it, you would like to think that there isn't a yeah. way they can easily just jam in a plug and copy the data off anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And powering it down as Greg said is a great way to avoid that because if it ain't in RAM, can't be nicked.
0: Cool. Thank you, Duck. Mark, what are you talking about this week?
4: I am talking about DNS encryption.
1: Ooh, it's like controversial, done that isn't it? <sighs> So
4: I'm what excited. I thought we'd do today is that uh, <laughs> uh, we've we've had a complaint from a listener uh, uh-huh. about the uh, questions that I ask at the beginning of my stories. Have we? And the uh, the listener. Uh, Suggesting that yeah, it was answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is all about the Department of Homeland Security.
0: I love your no, question. That's Security. not what she's saying.
4: Sorry, Alice. I just time. don't feel like if
3: there's four guests, everyone needs to give a 15 minute answer. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so this is about the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. And they published mm. a memorandum at the end of April warning agency CIOs not to be seduced by the lure of sexy new DNS encryption technologies
0: like wow. DNS Oof.
4: over TLS or DNS over HTTPS. That is now, pretty sexy. Obviously their memorandum nice. didn't say don't be seduced by sexy DNS encryption. That, that is my paraphrasing, just in case you're <laughs> thinking they sent racist memo. I wish they um, did. Memo.
0: <laughs> That's some good copywriting. <laughs> Mark, well, you should write. Anyway, stuff
4: before we go on, so DNS uh, over TLS and DNS over HTTPS are both technologies for encrypting your DNS queries, and that's important because what's happened over the last few years is uh, everybody's got much better at encrypting their web traffic. So lots and lots of the pages that we visit. Uh, we now visit them using an encrypted tunnel. So that can't be used very easily to spy on what we're looking at. But DNS has always been sent over plain text, which means if anybody can intercept your network traffic, um, then they can see what websites you're attempting to visit. They can't see what pages you're visiting, but it's it's still a pretty good view into what you're interested in and where you're going and what you're looking at. Uh, And so now that we're encrypting our web traffic, the, the, the the focus has kind of shifted to DNS now as being, okay, well, that's where people could spy on us. So that's where we need to apply encryption. And a lot of the coverage about DNS over HTTPS and DNS over TLS has focused on ISPs spying on you because typically your ISP is the person that provides the answers to your DNS queries. So DNS is basically like the internet address book. It turns uh, names that you can remember into IP addresses that you probably can't remember um and So you typically go to your ISP to get the answer. And even if you don't go to your ISP to get the answer, if you go to a different DNS resolver, the request goes through your ISP and your ISP can still see it. But also if there's anybody sat in the same internet cafe, they could see your DNS queries. Or if there was anybody, say a government agency, who could legally gain access to the ISP's network, or even illegally gain access to the ISP's network, then they could see your DNS traffic as well. So... Uh, Lots of the coverage has been about what ISPs can see or what people at ISPs can see. So when I read this story, I went into it thinking, right, this is going to be the man telling employees that DNS over HTTPS is evil because, you know, uh, as we say almost every week, uh, governments uh, in the Western world don't seem to like encryption very much and they seem to want to break it. So, of course, they're not going to open their arms to new forms of encryption that prevent spying. But that's actually not what it says at all. It's actually rather thoughtful document, in fact, I think. And what it says in a nutshell is that we like these technologies. We're just not able to support them at the moment. Mm. So the agencies in question use a system called Einstein 3 which I love the name by the way because that's exactly the kind of name that IT I guys and developers Einstein, do. Sounds like a good <laughs> sequel. I don't, I don't think you're allowed to use yes, the sequ- <laughs> I, I don't think you're allowed to use it but the, uh, the point is that everybody inside these agencies is supposed to be using Einstein 3 for amongst other things their DNS resolution because it provides a bunch of protection that the Department of Homeland Security thinks is terribly important and I think that that is fair enough. They're saying look we've built all this security for you into this system you can't just bypass all that security because you think that there's some other form of security you want you've just got to hold on and wait because we're Mm. going to include dns encryption in einstein whatever einstein 4 Um, uh, but you you you'll just have to hold on because we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and i rather like this story for a couple of reasons and the first reason i liked it is i think it's it's always worth remembering, like we talk about, uh, you know, uh, we were talking about the EARN IT Act a few weeks ago, where which is about efforts to try and maybe introduce encryption backdoors with a little bit of sleight of hand. Uh, and it's worth remembering that governments and government agencies, and particularly the US government and the, all the federal apparatus that goes with it, is actually massive And it's millions and millions of people and thousands of organizations, and they are all in their own way trying to do the right thing. And they don't act as one, and they don't have one single intention and one single behavior. Um, And this reads like uh, a sensible memo sent to a bunch of people who care about security just saying, you know, whoa there, hold your horses.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also, I
4: think... No, go on, Greg. So there's there's a lot of really valuable information
2: inside DNS, especially from a security point of view. You know, if you're trying to identify, you know, let's say insider activity or, you know, not let's say, ignore the insider activity, that's a bad example. Um, let's say that you're trying to identify you know, a, an adversary that somehow got inside your network and is trying to communicate back out to their servers, right? Because that's how it works. They've got to be able to talk back to their command and control to be able to orchestrate whatever they're doing on that on the inside of whatever they've broken into. And so if you're a security person, one of the many ways you can try and identify these things is looking at things like DNS. And if you control the DNS at the gateway of that network, you can see everything that's trying to go out. And it's a really powerful tool, and this is what I think is really you know useful for security agencies if they're trying to identify you know uh, let's say you know th- malicious actors that have somehow got inside their networks. And I would hope to goodness that this is what those agencies are doing because there's a lot of important na- you know nation secrets that they've got to protect in there. And so they do need that kind of visibility, um, and I think this is where a lot of people get confused. You, you touched on this with the whole DNS over HTTPS, and you know people seem to think, oh yes, encryption—that's great. That will stop my ISP from seeing it. But if you use whoever, whatever DNS provider you use at the other end, you know whatever you set the DNS to be, they're still going to yeah. see it. It's just yeah. the connection between you and that whatever you're you know asking to resolve your DNS will be encrypted. So it sounds like what they're saying here is, please don't, you know, dear employees, please don't use encrypted DNS. Because what it means is that you're going to be completely encrypted as you leave our security technologies for DNS, and you're just going to still be telling someone else outside our company what you're trying to connect to. But now we can't see that.
4: The way I like to think about it is that encrypted DNS just reduces the DNS conversation to the person who's asking the question and the person they would like to answer the question. And it cuts everybody else out of the loop. But you still have to trust the person that you're asking the question of or the organization that you're asking the question of. Um, and, And what the other thing I liked about this memo is, and you've touched on it there, Greg, is I think that actually probably what... What they're going through is what a lot of organizations are going through at the moment, which is DNS encryption has sort of come out of nowhere because it's very much the browser vendors and in particular Mm. Firefox who are pushing this. And Firefox is now making DNS over HTTPS, the default in the USA. Uh, It chooses who your uh, DNS resolver is. Which is kind of an interesting uh, security position in itself, or mm. you know privacy position in itself. Um, uh, so it's it, Firefox thinks uh, DNS encryption is a good thing. It thinks that DNS over HTTPS is probably the right way to do it because. Uh, it can do that DNS resolution, and also it funnels those DNS requests through port 443, which means your DNS is indistinguishable from all of your other web traffic, unlike DNS over TLS, which goes out on a separate port and would easily be blocked. Uh, Chrome is now doing its own experiments, and uh, DNS uh, encryption of one form or possibly both forms is also going to appear in Windows. Windows. Um, And it's it's those companies that are really driving this and everybody's having to respond to it. And I think it's very easy to say uh, that DNS encryption is a good thing and we should all be using it. But as you suggested, there are use cases for organizations saying, hang on a minute. We would like to be able to see the DNS traffic that's happening and being generated from inside our network. You know, there is a security angle to encrypting the DNS traffic, but there's also a security angle to being able to see the DNS traffic because we're trying to keep everyone safe, not just you.
1: You could even imagine a situation, particularly for the public service, where they may have some regulatory thing over their head that says, if you have staff who work in this department or that department or the other department, then you're obliged to prevent them visiting the following sites because they're known to have done bad things with data or simply to have provided did incorrect information in the past and doing that via dns is very very convenient because rather than having to filter the content when it comes back you just simply say sorry you can't visit that site and you can put up a useful block page to the user that says by the way we've got nothing against this site but we're required to prevent you going there and if you as you say if you end up inadvertently entrusting all your dns requests to some third party maybe one chosen by your browser then suddenly you're playing by a different set of rules. So even if even if you're not particularly concerned about the security of the DNS request, you may be unable to meet other obligations that you have for the things that your users are allowed to do. Yeah. I, mean, I I think this comes, the, the problem here is that
2: there's, the, you know, the browsers are coming, from a, coming at this from one angle, which is that, you know, if you've got a laptop and you're hopping from coffee shop to, to coffee shop to, you know, restaurant and so on, and hopping from network to network, you know, unless you've, to coded your machine to call out to a very specific DNS server, you're just grabbing whatever DNS on whatever network you join. So if I go to a coffee shop and I haven't changed my DNS settings to something myself, it's going to use whatever the coffee shop's Wi-Fi tells me is the local DNS it should be using. And so, and a lot even of these worse, of course, somebody could forge the replies anyway. Exactly, but, but what, it, what it means is a lot of data collection going on. You know, a lot of these places that offer free Wi-Fi, right? If it's free, you know, sometimes you're the product, and that's what's kind of happening in a lot of these, situ- uh, a lot of these situations. You know will go to these places and then, you know, take your like your Mac address of your machine, your unique ID, and then take that plus, you know, what you're browsing and they can build good tracking identifiers and so on. And I, and I think a lot of these places with free Wi-Fi, this is how they're offering free Wi-Fi, you know. And I so the browsers are trying to tackle that problem and that does require, well, okay, let's stop giving, every you know, let's stop hopping from network to network and every time we hop, we take a different DNS server, you know, we'll take whatever they tell us to use and let's use one at least we can think is trustable. But of course, with a corporate environment, the very same mechanism that, that, that that's being abused, you know, this idea of tracking and identifying what's going on over DNS is actually a very important security technology, especially in large enterprise, because it's mm. just very efficient. As Doug said, it's so efficient to do this at DNS. Um, it, you know, especially if you got a you're trying to sinkhole entire classes of networks. You want to cut China out. You know, you can cut the entire. You know, do or not DNS resolve anything within that address space, and it's a very quick and easy way to do something like that. If we go you know, uh, so yeah, it's it it, it is interesting because there's yeah, there's there's compelling arguments for both
4: sides, um, mm. and it is really interesting. I think just that there is there are two sides to this argument. I think one side of this argument has been very vocal uh, and become popular on social media in the way that. Mm certain points of view are deemed acceptable and certain points of view are deemed unacceptable. And I think the idea that there might be legitimate reasons for not rushing to embrace DNS over HTTPS in particular uh, has become one of those uh, very unpopular points of view. And I think that uh, that this memo actually makes a very sensible point, which is that, as with many other organizations, we have invested a lot in securing you and keeping you safe. Uh, And if you use this technology, which keeps you safe in one way, you will be avoiding all of that.
0: Cool. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Uh, Fido lovely to have you back what are
2: you talking about what, what am I talking about uh, I'm gonna yeah, be talking, what about, talking uh, about it's this is so this isn't a naked security story for once so just there was a really interesting um, sort of release that's come out for uh, office 365 um, posted on Microsoft's tech community uh, on their exchange team blog anyway they've just added a new feature which I just kind of made me chuckle which is uh, it's a it was I think it was the reply all storm protection in exchange online right and so no. they Microsoft uh, have released this brand new feature, which is to protect us against the reply-all storms. You know, when one of your colleagues uh, sends out an email to everyone in the company, and of course, then everyone starts doing reply-all, and you start getting thousands of emails pumping around the business uh, with no end, and especially when people go out of offices, and then everyone's out of offices uh, are triggering other people's out yeah. of offices, and then they're replying, and then you've got 12 billion emails sent in two minutes, and the whole in the email <laughs> servers fall apart. It's like the love bug all over again. Well, yeah, but this is an issue that's been around for as long as I can remember. Like, this is one of the oldest issues with email. Like, since I mean, genuinely, since I was a child, this was always something that was kind of joked about in uh, online. I'm out of the office. No, I'm out of the office. No,
4: I'm
1: out of the office. So so, it goes on for
2: a thousand years. So so the feature they've added um, uses this kind of very simple condition to detect if a reply all storm is happening. So it looks if there's 10 reply alls to over 5,000 recipients within 60 minutes. uh, And if it does detect, you know, 10 of these reply alls to where over 5,000 people are getting these emails in that one hour period, then they will block the subsequent replies to that thread for four hours.
1: did you say 5,000? Yeah, this what? is for micro, the Microsofts of the world, not before <laughs> they made this for Can, the we, can world. we dial that
4: down to seven?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because
4: although although there are like reply all storms of that scale occasionally, I think the problem that most people have with reply hall is we need we need some bit of AI that says, hang on a I minute, mean, this thread is boring and irrelevant and has nothing to do with me. Why am I still on it? And just send a polite email to everybody else saying could you please remove me from this email thread? But that's you adding to the storm. Then you reply <laughs> no. to everyone, please
1: remove me. And then everyone's out of office and start replying. And then you I'm you out of the office. I will <laughs> remove you from this thread when I return. No, I'm out of the I'd office now. I'd love though.
3: to know what Paul Ducklin thinks of this because he is a, I don't know what the word is, but you love a reply all duck. <laughs> You are probably one of the worst contenders for emailing everyone. We have Not a, in the whole company, but we in We have the a very security. small
1: team, and if you work on consensus, I don't think that's a problem. What, what Greg's talking about here is the problem that where somebody accidentally means to reply to one person, accidentally chooses everybody, and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So but I agree with Mark, like 5,000. I mean, how many... Companies in the UK, for example, have more than 5,000 people on an email thread very often. Mm, really? They probably all have huge email storms from time to time. <laughs> I guess when you get to 5,000, the scale of this is just unimaginable, right?
4: I was introduced to this problem in my in my young uh, working days when I was in my early 20s. Uh, back when disks were much smaller and and disk space was...
1: Yeah. I I think when you mean disks were much bigger but held almost no data. Yes. And uh, I worked for a very, very large
4: confectionery brand that you will have heard of. Uh, And somebody was doing a triathlon and they decided that they wanted to drum up some support. So they took a five megabyte uh probably some kind of bitmap image of their flyer (laughs) so they they, they basically took a photograph of an a4 sheet of paper it's like a letter size piece of paper and then they obviously they put it in the email and it was too large so they just used the sort of shrink facility so that it 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 looked smaller but of course, in the email, it's still a five <laughs> megabyte
3: picture. Oh my goodness! It just,
4: it's just very, very small. And then they emailed everyone in the company. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. And the Email systems weren't that sophisticated in those days. So how many people
3: were in the company?
4: Oh, uh, thousands. And, and so, <laughs> from nowhere, suddenly. The whole email system, everybody had a five megabyte email at the same time. So all this stuff is trying to get through the pipes at the same time. And then it all has to find some disk space to sit on when it gets there. And five megabytes now is nothing. But back then, five megabytes was a sizable thing indeed. And all we knew about it was just suddenly email didn't work everywhere across the whole company. (laughs) Uh, And we were already all dependent on email. So, of course, you're trying to email people to find out what's going on because you know oh, we were no. in, a, in a remote outpost uh, and it just gridlocked the whole company just this
1: uh, i hope they got loads of sponsorship for their triathlon and that was before <laughs> the reply alls happened to the send to all right and then they everyone gets another to email worse. with five meg attachments on it because it's yeah. in the email thread yeah, oh someone gosh. replying to all with five meg going
2: what is this rubbish well, this is, this is ultimately what, I mean, I hate email. It's so archaic, but this the whole problem of like, this wouldn't happen if it wasn't just how email is. Like, you know, it, the fact that, yeah, if you send that email and you reply all, it will still, you know, very likely have that embedded attachment further down the thread. Um, there's a couple of things I thought were really interesting about this. Um, the other one is that then what Microsoft do is send you a reply all message. So it says like, reply all storm protection NDR or something like that. And it says, the reply to the email conversation wasn't sent. The conversation is too busy with too many people People. And I Ooh. like the idea of my. If I got then <laughs> yeah. I didn't really know what was going on, I'd be like, hang on, is Microsoft saying we're not allowed to have such a big conversation? Like, how dare you? This conversation is too popular. There's too many people hanging out here. Um, Does it, they give you some guidance no, on it? A bit
0: like it's, um, it's judging me as well because occasionally, <laughs> someone like WhatsApp groups, occasionally I'll get a comment, you know, or, or I'll come out of a meeting and there'll be like a 100 messages and I'll think, oh, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed. And I feel like just messaging and saying, just calm down, just stop sending send so me messages. I feel like that's what Microsoft's telling us here
1: yeah yeah it sounds like it. But I yeah, guess so- Greg the other problem this doesn't deal with is perhaps the bigger problem of reply to all which is where you, it, it's not the volume that matters it's the fact that you send a reply that wasn't meant to go to everybody so it's not just that you're oh, overloading yes. the system but you have inadvertently caused a massive data breach <laughs> do you know what I mean when it's not a
3: data breach when it's just funny I think we're at the end of the, we're at the, end of the pod now let's <laughs> let's let, let I, I have
1: two tales of reply all fails. I have. a legal excuse for a data breach? I'm sorry, your worship, but it was amusing. So yeah. I, okay. Well, why don't we, why don't we
2: switch tracks? Um, and I, I will tell you, I have two tales of me making mistakes with the reply alls. Actually, well, one's me, one's, one's something that just involved me. Um, one was we, so in sales, in the sales department, um, I, I you know, a long, long time ago, I used to be one of our, our technical services people. So I, I was con- very connected to sales and, um, we would do all these big conferences and we'd have to get the clothing a tie, you know, the shoes and everything um, for the conference. So uh, it's one of those trade shows, you know, like, so we all looked like we're in cool uniform. And of course, they send it out to the entire, you know, the entirety of the sales team. And of course, I I accidentally would, well known for doing reply all. So I reply all going, hi, yeah, yeah. So I'm a size 11 and a half uh, on my right foot and a size 11 on my left foot. uh, But I'll happily wear a size 12 and blah, blah, blah. And of course, then from the rest of the company, everyone's like, oh, cool, you got big feet, you got weird one, half one. Everyone knew. the size of my feet and so it became a really kind of awkward thing of like "Oh, you've got big feet and uh, yeah so uh, don't tell sales anything because they will always find uh, ways to take advantage of you. The other one I I, I enjoyed which was uh, they, they they weren't talking about your feet they weren't no, they no big shoes, they were.
4: Big yeah. shoes. <laughs> yeah big shoes big big hand, big feet. Yeah.
2: yeah thanks everyone that's probably the nicest compliment i've had in a while uh, <laughs> uh the other part the other other one that kind of involved me so my estate agent accidentally did a email out i assume they were trying to do a blind carbon copy to all their customers um it was lovely to know that they're using outlook and just copying and pasting in quite literally like uh, several thousand uh, individuals' email addresses into the like the two field, and so sent oh an God. email to absolutely every single person that was uh, was was renting. Um, but what was so really bizarre is, of course, then the massive storm of everyone's emails just like replying, all going, oh, is this a data breach?" And then and then a group of people. Yeah. The thing is then on the same thread from this estate agent, they're like, "Please, uh, please don't reply." Blah 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 blah. Then all the people start rallying together, going, "No, oh, there's been a data breach. We should call the you know." The information commissioner's office and all this kind of stuff on the very thread going out to everyone i can't unsubscribe but it was a really interesting thing to sit on also it was really interesting to find out who was renting because it was clearly set to all the people letting property and not owning so i was like "Ooh, you let do you instead of owning um so that was fun
1: I have collected well, that's a more spammer's but- dream, isn't it because it means that everybody on the list now has a copy of everyone else's email address oh, yeah. on their computer so i get, yeah exactly does
2: anyone else have uh, a st- a fail of reply
0: it reminds me of uh, at Sophos, we used to have um a an and e- a sort of catch all email to everybody um that would go around and you could like advertise if you were selling furniture or <laughs> it could say, you know, where's the best tire place to buy things from? And the amount of reply or storms that came from that. Like there was one to Greg, do you remember the one about Spoongate? And someone upset <laughs> <laughs>
2: about two- two. I do all of these, yeah. <laughs> I'm also remembering that one of the culprits and the reason why we no longer have this email alias is on yeah. this call. It's on this podcast right now, Duck? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got that email distribution, email thread. So this Microsoft thing wouldn't protect against that, though, then because it has to be hang on, hang on.
1: What was Spoongate? Do you not remember that it was somebody? complained oh no there's a shortage of teaspoons in the left-hand kitchen there's only one left they're all in the wrong place someone should bring them back have you no decency and of course you can i think they were just sounding off because they'd had a they'd had a bad morning obviously and uh let's just say that was spoon gate it was all <laughs> downhill uphill and around the dales from then Well, it's also when people don't sort of reply, when someone decides to be really cheeky and then starts replying saying, I have all the spoons and has a big pile of spoons. The thing that this doesn't protect against is that terrible problem of of email address auto-completion where you start typing in someone's name and it matches the name of a group that actually includes zillions of people. (laughs) I remember we had that once when we had uh, a group called everybody but we also had a colleague whose name was eve and so you can imagine that some emails people started typing e v and it would auto complete to everybody instead of eve which led to some interesting moments so we no longer have a group called everybody <laughs> I thought you were going to say we no longer have an employee
4: called Eve. (laughs)
0: Well, maybe both. Probably
4: both. Eve's gone now. Um, She's been escorted from the premises.
0: And on that note, I think that's the end of the podcast. Um, Where can we find you on social media, Mark?
4: You can find me on Instagram at Internet of Hens.
1: Duck? I am at Duckblog on Twitter and at P. Ducklin on Instagram. Friday. also known as
2: greg uh you <laughs> could find me on twitter as at sec uh and i'm on reddit as you know forward slash you forward slash secbug. Uh, come hang out with the cool kids on the reddits Oh no, um, that was a really cool way to say that wasn't it okay
0: it was it would have been more cool if you hadn't have said that uh, yeah <laughs> i think that
4: was it was reddit appropriate in its level yeah i was yeah, 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 at midnight alice where are you where are
0: you, can you? follow me on twitter ali rouge follow along Duck's still doing his Facebook Lives, and I'm enjoying watching his hair grow longer week by week. Um, so uh, go ke- check them out. And if you don't like it, they're on YouTube. Um, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com for all the latest security news. And until next time,
2: stay, stay safe
3: and stay
0: safe Oh,
2: and stay alert. Oh.
0: Stay alert. <laughs> <laughs>